Hello Key Stage 4, today I'm going to talk to you about Macbeth. I'd like to just begin by recapping some of the main events in the plot. So Macbeth takes place in Scotland and opens with the appearance of three witches. They express their intentions to meet with Macbeth, who is a soldier, part of King Duncan's army, and has recently just fought in a battle with Norway. Following their success in battle, Macbeth and his fellow general Banquo encounter some witches on a heath. The witches give some prophecies and they say that Macbeth will be the Thane of Cawdor and that he will eventually be crowned king. Banquo will not be king, but he will be the father to a long line of kings. They're obviously very confused by this and Macbeth demands to hear more, but the witches disappear. News soon reaches Macbeth that he has been made the Thane of Cawdor. The previous holder of the title is found to have been a traitor, aligning himself with um, Norway in the battle, and as a, as a result of this, he's sentenced to death, and therefore Macbeth is given his position. And therefore, of course, this means that the first prophecy the witches have given is true, so we, we are more likely to believe, therefore, that Macbeth will become king later on in the play. Now, with this in mind, when Malcolm, who is King Duncan's son, is proclaimed as the Prince of Cumberland, meaning he is now heir to the throne, Macbeth realises that he does indeed, indeed desire to take the crown himself, but he's uncertain whether he should let kind of fate run its course or if he should act upon um, this prophecy and do something to get the crown quicker. Now, Duncan and Macbeth make plans to dine at Macbeth's castle at Inverness, but Macbeth decides to write ahead to his wife to inform her that they will be visiting and also about what the witches have told him. Upon hearing this news, Lady Macbeth is adamant as to what should happen next and she desires passionately for her king to become, that her husband to become the king of Scotland. She believes that the pair should murder Duncan to obtain the crown and she refuses to listen to anything which Macbeth says um, to sort of talk himself out of these plans. She plays the humble host and servant to Duncan when he arrives um, and Act 1 ends with Macbeth and Lady Macbeth setting their plans to commit regicide, to kill the king. Now also within Act 1 we hear from a captain who basically relates the tales of the battle showing that King Duncan was not on the battlefield and we'll look at that a little bit more later but it's really important that this conversation takes place to inform the audience that Macbeth is kind of your ultimate hero at the start he's loyal to his king and his country he's victorious in battle and a really impressive warrior so in act two Macbeth sees this image this first hallucination of a floating dagger and he believes it's beckoning him towards Duncan's chambers and while Duncan is sleeping, Macbeth commits regicide by stabbing Duncan, and this is done off stage. He's horrified by what he's done, and he returns to Lady Macbeth, who could not carry out the murder herself because she claims that the physical similarities between Duncan and her father were too much for her to cope with. Macbeth becomes very guilty, and he brings the, the murder weapons back with him accidentally, which was not part of the plan. And Lady Macbeth furiously returns the daggers, covers her hands in blood in the process, um, and the two of them are, are frantically washing their hands when knocking at the gate is heard. 
Macbeth and Lady Macbeth suddenly return to their chambers and become sort of ignorant to what's taken place. They put on this huge act. Now, the drunken porter answers the knocking at the gates and there's a lot of hell imagery and he's he's really, really drunk probably from the party that they'll have had. Macduff is who is knocking at the door. He's the Thane of Fife and he's arrived at the castle to wake Duncan up. He is the one who discovers Duncan's body and sort of announces his death to everybody. He screams for everybody to wake up. And Macbeth and Lady Macbeth pretend that they know nothing about it. They're just sort of as appalled as everybody else about the news. And Macbeth, in an attempt to divert any kind of suspicion from himself, kills Duncan's guards and places the suspicion on them as the perpetrators of the act. He claims to have done this in a fit of rage and Malcolm and Donald Bay know there's something kind of not quite adding up and fear for their lives. So Malcolm um, decides that he will flee to England and Donald Bay travels to Ireland, which leaves Macbeth free to take the throne. In Act 3... Uh, Macbeth is now king, Banquo voices his suspicions to himself that Macbeth has gained the crown through foul means. But meanwhile, Macbeth, he's not kind of quite certain of how long he'll be king for, but he's haunted by the prophecy that was given to Banquo, that Fleance and his children will end up being king. So he sees that Banquo is a threat and he hires a group of murderers to kill not only Banquo, but Fleance's son as well. Banquo is brutally murdered, stabbed several times, although Fleance manages to escape, which leaves Macbeth incredibly fearful. Whilst Fleance lives, Macbeth's kingship is still vulnerable. They then have a feast, a banquet, and Macbeth is surrounded by guests, but he's haunted by the appearance of Banquo's ghost. He rants and raves at the ghost and asks for it to stop tormenting him. But Lady Macbeth tries to gain control again of this situation by saying that, um, you know, he's always had these hallucinations since he was a child and not to speak to him or you'll just anger him. In Act 4, Macbeth becomes more and more unstable. And so he seeks out the witches this time again to tell him more about his future. They summon these apparitions and the first is um, him as being an armed kind of head which tells Macbeth to be um, aware, be aware of Macduff, they say, the Thane of Fife. The, the second apparition is a bloody child and it says that Macbeth um, shouldn't fear anybody that's um, born of, of woman. So none of woman born will be able to harm him. And the third is a child with a kind of tree in its hand And that tells Macbeth um, he will never be defeated unless Burnham Wood moves towards his castle. So having hearing these um, kind of prophecies or seeing these apparitions, he feels a little bit more secure, perhaps gets a little bit complacent. And so Macbeth returns to his castle and his first plan is to kind of do away with Macduff. So again, employing murderers, he asks for them to um, murder Macduff and his family, his wife and his children. So they're savagely slaughtered. And again, we see, we see this decline in Macbeth's character from hero to villain um, in this tragedy. Macduff, meanwhile, who has already fled to England to try and round up Malcolm in the English army to help, um, he, he is later sort of warned that, um, he's informed that his family have been 
murdered. And he's absolutely devastated, of course, by this. In Act 5, Lady Macbeth is overcome with guilt by this time. She's kind of taken to sleepwalking. And we have this interesting scene where we kind of have a, a doctor and her her maid who are sort of observing her sleepwalking and the things that she's saying, which is almost like a guilty confession. She becomes increasingly more agitated and it looks like she's trying to wash this spot of blood from her hands. She's driven to the point of absolute despair and ends up, we presume, committing suicide. She ends her life, which is seen as a, a sin for the time. Macbeth is told about the news of his wife's death um, and he kind of toys over the decisions he's made, the choices he's made and, and where it's led him. He prepares for battle because of the uh, the sort of threat uh, on the building, on his castle, um, because we've got Malcolm Macduff um, invading forces, reaching the woods, and obviously they come with the disguise of the woods and move towards the castle. So hidden by these branches, it appears as if the wood is moving towards the castle, and that's just their form of camouflage. When Macbeth realises that the wood has moved... Um, I guess he, he has the final opportunity to kill, which is young Syward, before Macduff is able to kill Macbeth and sort of get his revenge because he was from his mother's womb, untimely ripped. He was born by C-section. So that's kind of a little bit of a twist in the in the plot at the end there. And the, the play ends then with Malcolm is proclaimed king and it restores order to society and it leaves um, Scotland with the rightful monarch, um, and an, an end to Macbeth's tyranny and he's crowned at Scone. So in terms of how to revise for this exam then, you could do some past papers from the AQA website, you could create a theme-based question of your own and try to predict what may come up, you could watch the Mr Bruff exemplar answers and tutorials, you could buy the study guide and work booklet from school Perhaps you could look through old class workbooks and try to recap some of your even better if targets and meet them. You could listen to the audiobook, which is on a website, which I think is called Tangible. Uh, you could perhaps maybe watch a copy of the DVD or a, a live version of the play. Sometimes they've been recorded and put onto YouTube. Perhaps create some flashcards. So I wanted to just start off then by kind of trying to put this into context and you need to Embed some of this information, link it to the quotations that you will pull from the extracts. Um, and this is to meet assessment objective three. So King James I was on the throne and therefore you, you need to be referring to this as the Jacobean period. You can get away with Shakespeare in England. And to be honest, you could probably get away with saying the Elizabethan period. If you wanted a little bit of background information to sort of the run up to this time, there is a film on Netflix available called Mary Queen of Scots. And that kind of shows you the disruption with the monarchy and how King James um, becomes King of Scotland. So... James followed on from Elizabeth. She didn't have children. That was unsettling for many. And so Macbeth kind of mimics this in a way, doesn't he? He doesn't have kids with Lady Macbeth. And perhaps the message Shakespeare is delivering to King James is to have a really kind of um, steady line of, of heirs to the throne in the same way that he gives this idea that Fleance will be, uh, or Banquo will be king to a long line of, of kings through Fleance. Um, so... Perhaps this has inspired Shakespeare then to create this childless couple. Um, 
James was son of Mary, Queen of Scots, who was executed for treason. So we've obviously got this kind of fear of regicide and treason to begin with, which may have influenced the plot. And again, something really key with that is Guy Fawkes tried to blow up Parliament in 1605. And this message in this play, Macbeth was perhaps trying to tell anybody who was plotting sort of treason, regicide, they'd be punished accordingly with obviously the death penalty. And we see this again through the Thane of Cawdor, don't we? Uh, the original Thane of Cawdor before Macbeth is made the Thane of Cawdor. So you've got the play ending with both Macbeth and Lady Macbeth dying and therefore it suggests that divine right and the chain of being is kind of reinstated and we go back to that natural order which has been um, disrupted by Macbeth usurping uh, King Duncan through murder. So the play was first performed in about 1606, very superstitious at the time. They wouldn't refer to its title, instead they'd refer to it as the Scottish play. King James I himself was interested in the supernatural and so the witches are very much employed probably to entertain him alone. Um, the Protestant church dominated English, England and Scotland at this time. So the witches are really significant within the play. Not only do they sort of open it and they, they speak completely differently in terms of the rhythm and the pattern of their speech compared to the noble characters who speak in iambic pentameter. We've got kind of the use of rhyming couplets and things. that They are there to entertain. But they're very much linked with kind of storms and shipwrecks and things. Um, and being kind of um, very much influenced by religion at this time as well, um, Shakespeare's deliberately kind of put in these religious links or perhaps it's influenced his writing and we've got lots of links as well to kind of Greek mythology and things which, which link to the witches such as Hecate. So in the Old Testament in Exodus it's written, thou shalt not suffer a witch to live and this is a time when um, many women lost their life because they were kind of um, put to trial for being witches so it was something that was really significant. Um, it, you know, it was like a, a large witch hunt in England and Scotland at the time. And one of the sort of um, things the witches talk about then is this idea of kind of um, a, a shipwreck and seeking revenge on, on a woman and a, a man at sea. And that could be linked to Anne of Denmark, who was James I's wife or future wife. And she was very nearly shipwrecked on her way to meet her future husband. And so the weather was so terribly destructive that the ship had to turn around and return to port. And so James I decided to sail to Denmark to collect her instead. We've got, in 1542, the Witchcraft Act. Um, quite often, women were believed as being suspected of witchcraft because they were probably quite old or poor in some way, um, economically vulnerable. Um, quite often widows or, or unmarried women or quite often living with mental illnesses which they won't have understood in the same way that we do today. So it was a, a real persecution of the poorest in a way um, and I guess it was trying to find an explanation for many of the problems in society. It was it was a way of scapegoating. So King James I was, like I say, really interested in witches. He wrote a book called Demonology as well. Um so Shakespeare, writing at the time, obviously the king going to, to view this, it was very much written with him in mind. The Porter scene is quite significant as well. Um, obviously, you've got the hell reference there, the threat of the afterlife. Um, I guess it's it's 
questioning people's sort of morals and encouraging them to be loyal to the monarchy because this idea of God selecting the king or queen. Um, a couple of little things that we've also got going on. A glass mirror would have probably been held up to King James I during the production to sort of show his reflection and this idea of bringing stability and heirs for many generations at the, the time of the witches' apparitions and prophecies. Um, another thing that you could comment on regarding sort of mental health as well, which we've just sort of looked at a second ago, is this limited sort of health knowledge. It, we could talk about that with Lady Macbeth sleepwalking as well, and that they can't understand maybe she's suffering from PTSD or something at the time. Um, you've got this huge kind of conflict that's about to happen as well, obviously, between kind of science and, and religion. The word weird, because the, the witches are referred to as weird sisters, it's an old English word and it used to be spelt W-Y-R-D. Um, and this idea of being weird is to do with the ability to control destiny and fortune. So we can argue then, are the witches responsible for Macbeth's downfall or is that sort of inbuilt evil always there or do they kind of inject that idea into him or perhaps you think it's maybe Lady Macbeth okay so it's up to you to decide it's kind of um a question that you know runs throughout the play we we try and pin sort of the blame on, on who is responsible I guess for Macbeth's downfall so if you are to be exploring um, genre within your answers you need to be referring to this as a tragedy genre okay and again stating the obvious really but make sure that you refer to this as being a play not a book or a novel or something um, if you really freeze up with trying to identify techniques or the language barrier itself of thinking I can't read Shakespeare in English it doesn't make any sense to me like with an inspector calls where I advise you to look at structure, language, audience, response, context and themes, that slacked approach. One of the things I told my class to do last year, which worked quite well just to get them going to begin with, was before you even read the extract you're given in the exam, to think about who is speaking and how long are they speaking for. So who speaks first and who speaks the most? And with that, you could quite easily analyse it in a way where, for example, if Macbeth or Duncan is speaking first, you can link that to patriarchy, male-dominated society, monarchy is associated with power, and so they speak first. If you've got a character, say, like Lady Macbeth, who is dominating the speech between herself and, and Macbeth, you could comment on how that's really controversial at the time and how women wouldn't have had that kind of a voice. And so Shakespeare is perhaps acting as a feminist there to show a really powerful speaking um, female who's really outspoken and, and manipulates her husband at the time. And so that's simply just looking at the text on the page as a visual tool. Before you've read again, you might choose to skim and scan over the extract for significant pieces of punctuation. And I'm not talking about the writer uses full stops and commas. The three things or four things actually, which I'd look out for, an ellipsis for a dot, 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 for a pause or a thought or a, a memory or an interruption. And that can act as kind of um, a real tension builder. You could look at the same with a hyphen, really. It creates that dramatic pause, suspense, disjointed sentence structure. And that kind of conveys this idea of, of guilt or panic or fear or, you know, it's, it's, it really acts as kind of an audience hook. You could also look for a question mark. So whether it be a question in speech or a rhetorical question, 
quite often, again, you're exploring a character's psyche. It might be guilt. It could be a feeling of fear or, or pain or them questioning kind of their own morals and values. And finally, if you want to expand and to look at tone of a piece of writing, you might wish to look at an exclamation mark, which obviously in a tragedy you would perhaps link this to the idea of maybe pain or fear or anger. Um, quite often we see imperatives being used as well, so you could kind of link it with those. On the other hand, it can be associated, of course, with kind of joy and excitement, and that generally sets the feeling for the play. So that's, again, a high-level thing to look at, to be looking at tone, but you still haven't had to have read a single word to do that. Then what I'd advise you to do is highlight all of the words that you definitely know the meaning of that you're really really confident with and to just focus on those next and it's guaranteed that within the extract one of those words will be a recognizable noun a naming word for something or a recognizable adjective a describing word for something or a verb a doing word and so by recognizing one or two of these words in a quotation you know let's pick something predictable for example like blood or killed or sleep or dagger you can always look at that word on a literal meaning, so the denotation of the word. So dagger, it's a weapon, isn't it? Um, if you look at the connotations of that word, it's linking to murder, it's linking to regicide, it's a hallucination, it's suggesting guilt. And you can quite easily kind of branch off from there with a load of ideas and link it to writer's purpose. So what was you know Shakespeare wanting to show King James or the audience at the time? Don't commit regicide. Why? Because Guy Fawkes has just tried to block King James in Parliament. So... Again, doing that, you've not had to read the extract, you've not had to understand it, you've not had to engage with any Shakespearean language whatsoever. If you wanted to push yourself a little bit kind of further beyond connotations and beyond word class, it may be that you start to kind of look at language features. But if you really, really struggle to pick out things like, um, you know, juxtaposition or metaphor or things like that, what you could do is look for repetition so you're just looking for a word to be said more than once and straight away why is repetition being used well quite often it's to, to stress an idea a theme a point um a concept isn't it so again with alliteration words that start with the same letter or sound you can quite quickly advance that into um, a much more impressive point so instead of just saying alliteration is used and avoid things like to make it flow you want to be looking at the sounds that are created so if it's like um, a harsh sound like within the word dagger, which we've just looked at, the d sound or a, a harsh put sound is, is what we call a plosive sound. Why does he want to create a harsh sound? Um, again, quite frequently you can just say it's to reflect the key theme of whatever it may be, okay? So that's an approach of, of how to go about Macbeth if you absolutely don't have a clue what's going on, can't understand the language, you don't need to, okay? You can still comment on those things and probably get a C grade from doing that at least, or what is now a grade four slash five. If you are pushing to get into the higher grades, I would advise you to start to challenge the plot and characters. So we're thinking seven plus eight, nine, okay? So in this case, you could say, instead of the predictable Lady Macbeth is evil, you know, you could be looking at her as a, a powerful female and what was Shakespeare trying to show about women at the time? Instead of saying, predictably, Duncan is a good king, you could say things like, well, actually, he's a pretty weak and pathetic king. Twice he is naive enough to employ a Thane of Cawdor who um, commits treason or regicide. Um, he probably gets so drunk at the castle that he falls asleep and gets killed in his sleep. He's he's kind of pretty naive in that respect, isn't he? Um, 
not necessarily the best king. He wasn't even on the battle kind of front line with with Scotland. He had to be told what happened in battle by the captain. So always be looking for ways to, to challenge things and a kind of new slant on stuff rather than just saying the predictable. Because remember, these examiners are going to read answer after answer. They're going to hear the same thing over and over again. And the way you get your answer to stand out is by saying something original. That's what will get you into the more perceptive, original, higher kind of bands at the top of the mark scheme. Okay then, so in terms of how to look at some quotations, so let's pick out the quotation, I am in blood, stepped in so far that should I wait no more, returning were as tedious as go over. Okay, so the pronoun I that opens that quotation there is to develop a relationship with Macbeth by exploring his mind and his personal troubles. And Macbeth then uses this sort of metaphorical imagery in his speech to create imagery. Everything can always create imagery as well. That's another thing you can fall back on. To represent themes of ambition and death, this idea of him stepping in blood. And he's so bloodthirsty, he's killed so many people in battle. Remember, his um, his sword was described to be almost smoking. He was going that fast, he was killing people that quickly um, at the start of Act 1. And he's almost gone from being the, the war hero where it was a good thing to be killing people to now a bloodthirsty villain and he represents the fallen hero doesn't he within the play so wider textual reference you could talk about this idea of lucifer and one of the quotations that you could link to that is angels are bright still though the brightest fell and this idea kind of links as well to his visual hallucinations and it creates horror when you start to explore his psyche and his guilty conscience He's described to wade and the, the, the verb wade suggests struggle and torment, doesn't it? And remember, keep linking to the fact it's a, a tragedy. We need to see the villain struggle or receive some kind of punishment, not just a case of he is killed. Um, because this is massively going to appeal again to King James after Guy Fawkes has tried to commit treason already by blowing up Parliament. And in a Protestant society, believing in kind of the chain of being and divine right, the audience would desire that reorder um, and for Macbeth to suffer and finally be killed. When he says he can win no more, that almost suggests kind of a little prematurely, to be honest, that he's already admitting defeat and losing hope and purpose from a very, very early stage. And again, if you can find contrast with wider textual references beyond the extract you're given, so in this case you could link to that idea of a vaulting ambition, that provides contrast. We've also got this verb used, returning, which suggests he's remorseful. He wishes almost he could go back in time. His journey as being king is tedious. He's never going to be satisfied with his levels of power. And if you listen to my podcast on An Inspector Calls, you will have heard me talk about this idea of Freud and wish fulfillment and this idea of always wanting more. And Macbeth, he can, he's kind of got this insatiable appetite for power and ambition and it's never enough even to be king. And it reflects him being in this kind of pre-hell limbo kind of purgatory state. Um, and a religious society obviously at the time would have been very conditioned and bribed by this idea of the afterlife and behaving themselves. You can also look at sentence structure. So this is a complex sentence structure and it reflects his complex, perplexed, irrational, unstable mindset. If you struggle to learn quotations, Mr. Bruff does this kind of rap, Max Not Hot, I think it's called. And, you know, sometimes making a bit of a song or a rap like that can help quotations to stick in your mind, okay? You need to pick quotations that 
provide, I guess, visual imagery for you, such as for me, I could think of um, Make Thick My Blood or Pour Spirits in Thine Ear or Macbeth Does Murder Sleep off the top of my head because those are quotations which I find memorable, but you need to find quotations which are memorable to you. And of course, this is um, your way of meeting assessment objective one, quote heavily from the extract. I do think if you're going for kind of higher levels with AO1, that assessment objective one, where you're trying to, you know, use relevant rich quotations that you can explore for imagery. Like I said before, it's quite cool to look at things in terms of contrast. So you could look at little short quotations like uh, how Macbeth changes from being a worthiest cousin to a dead butcher. And how that, of course, influences a less educated audience, perhaps, um, in the Jacobean era. You know, it's 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 already through the witch's prophecies, practically telling us what's going to happen. It's relatively easy to follow in that respect, isn't it? But of course, it's got some real kind of um, deeper issues that a more educated audience could also explore. So I wanted to just start off then by um, looking through some characters. So let's start off with the obvious. Let's look at Macbeth. And some of these points that I cover then are things that you could comment on if you got purely got like a character question in the exam. So if you get how is Macbeth presented within this extract, you can still link to these points, which I'm going to go through. So firstly, he resembles greed and bloodthirst, impatience. And of course, that temporary um, political power is temporary. You could refer to him as a tyrant and a, a dictator. People fear him and that's why they follow his leadership rather than because they respect him, arguably like Malcolm at the end. He contrasts the loving and selfless King Duncan or Malcolm. Elizabeth was very much loved and respected but left the country feeling anxious as she didn't have an heir to the throne. And so, like I've said before, King James and Macbeth not having kids at this stage could, you know, that could be reflected there within Shakespeare's um, influences of, of why he's written this. Keep linking back to writer's purpose. Many people will have doubted King James the first. Um, he was almost seen as kind of being foreign blood and, you know, his people didn't trust him. He had, he had a lot of ground to make up. However, we need to have a happy ending for the royal audience. Um, and so to get rid of Macbeth at the end, that execution would have very much appealed to the audience. If you were to kind of try to embed some props theory, if you were going for a higher grade, we could talk about how Macbeth starts off as the hero, then becomes the villain. Um, we could explore the idea of, of gender stereotyping. So, you know, at the start, he's powerful and strong. He's a leader. He's victorious in battle. He's married um, and looking at patriarchy. But then, you know, on the flip side of that, he becomes this kind of mass murderer, a bit of a coward in, in the end. He gets murderers to do his dirty work for him and he's manipulated ultimately by a female, which would have been seen as weak and offensive. Um, he symbolises fate and choices. Remember Macbeth and Banquo meet the witches at the same time. You could argue that one chooses the sort of angel on the shoulder and one chooses the devil. Um, very much kind of exploring the idea of a moral compass there and, and your destiny and if you choose to kind of go with fate or take hold of the reins and make your own choices. He's the protagonist, which means the main character and therefore he is the main focus of the plot. He is the central figure. Um, 
In terms of Macbeth's downfall, we've kind of touched upon this a little bit already. I want you to think of, you know, is it a lack of sleep making him irrational, making him hallucinate? He's knackered probably from battle. He's probably had too much to drink when he's returned home. How much is alcohol to blame? Is it Lady Macbeth for manipulating him? Was it the witches to blame? Does he feel like he's got nothing to lose because he's got no heir to his wealth? So in terms of Lady Macbeth then, um, perhaps, you know, Shakespeare admires these strong, powerful female characters like he does with Juliet in Romeo and Juliet. She too is quite kind of spirited and free-willed and stands up to her parents, doesn't she? Um, perhaps she's kind. Of, he's linking there to kind of the idea of Eve in the Bible and this idea of women bringing suffering to humans through childbirth or corrupting men through sort of the story of um, what happens in the Garden of Eden there. Um, and we have a lot of that kind of serpent and snake imagery throughout, don't we? She's very much associated with that as well. Look like the flower, but be the innocent serpent under it, she advises Macbeth. So words that you could use to describe her then, she's evil, she's manipulative, she's power hungry, she's linked with the witches, she summons spirits, um... She's shocking, she's controversial, um, she speaks in extended turns, she dominates dialogue with her husband, um, lots of imperatives in her speech to reflect her authority. She's described as a spur, a driving force in Macbeth's downfall. She dies off stage by suicide to reinstate order. She's not worthy of a death on stage, but also suicide was a sin and we don't want this to detract from the focus being on Macbeth and his downfall. Um, we don't actually really know what her first name is because she takes Macbeth's surname, obviously, through marriage. So she's just Lady Macbeth. And that, again, reflecting patriarchy. King Duncan then contrasts Macbeth as a leader. He's associated frequently with religious language and quite often linked to heaven. Um, like, I think he's described as having kind of golden blood, silver skin. Um, he's quite a selfless leader and he's quite happy to reward people whether it be through titles or land or you know he gives even Lady Macbeth a diamond doesn't he when he visits the castle so he's seen as quite generous and quite often as well Shakespeare uses this semantic field of harvest in his language when describing mainly within the, the conversation with Banquo there this idea of that he's investing in his people and he wants to to grow the country through his people um, as a result of that, whereas Macbeth obviously is, is selfish and he takes everything for himself and so Scotland becomes this kind of barren land instead. He represents stability because he's got two sons, um, that being Donald, Bain and Malcolm. He's killed in his sleep, which is when he's most vulnerable and therefore it's most disturbing. His death isn't shown on stage because that wouldn't be of any appeal to King James. Um... It's also kind of more disturbing, isn't it? It's a bit like in a horror film. If you're more scared with something, waiting for something to jump out than the thing itself actually appearing a lot of the time. It's the fear of the unknown. Um, he potentially creates an ideology for King James to aspire to after a time of political unrest. He speaks in iambic pentameter, which means 10 beats per line to reflect his nobility and to contrast the witches who speak in rhyming couplets. Okay, let's look at Macduff next then. So he finds um, King Duncan dead and announces it to everybody. He's a bit of a spokesperson. And again, when you write about this, some of you are sort of used to that P paragraph structure, but you can kind of move away from that if you want and think, 
what does the character do? How do they do it? Why is it done? I'll be thinking because of this, but this needs to be shown so that such and such can happen. So if you don't want to go point evidence, explain, think, what, how, why, or because, but, so, okay? And then you're, you're a little less restricted by a scaffold and that's going to help you move from probably a band, uh, a grade four up to maybe a kind of grade six type answer at least. Macduff, um, his family are murdered when he goes to England to encourage Malcolm to return to be the king. Um, and therefore, you could argue he's sort of seen as a bit of a saviour type figure, a bit of a Jesus type figure. He's sacrificing the safety of his family for the good of the whole country there in the Scottish population. He's loyal and true to his word throughout, represents a loyal and dedicated, noble, idealistic kind of a character. Now, he kind of arguably conforms to gender stereotypes in some respects in battle and by having a wife and children and so on. But he also challenges it in the respect of how he handles the news of the murders of his wife and children. Um, he, he kind of gets upset, doesn't he? He cries. Um, and that's very different, I guess, for a man at this time who would need to be seen to be rational and strong. He murders Macbeth in Act 5 and therefore is responsible for reinstating order. I don't think you can arguably say that him murdering Macbeth is regicide as such because Macbeth isn't the rightful king to begin with. So I think that's kind of how he gets away with that one. Okay then, so looking at the character Banquo, he is murdered by um, Macbeth's murderers, um, but his son Fleance escapes. Fly, good Fleance, fly, 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 is the quotation there that um, his kind of last words almost, isn't it? And the witches tell him he will be father to a long line of kings, but he'll not be the king. He meets the witches at the same time that Macbeth does and so juxtaposes Macbeth's evil and ambition as a more sort of good and virtuous um, moral character. He is a victim because he's a victim, of course, of Macbeth's bloodthirst, ambition and jealousy. Perhaps it's to do with him having a child and Macbeth doesn't. He loves Duncan and is seen to be a good man in the eyes of society and therefore we're very sad as an audience to see him killed. Um, his ghost returns to haunt Macbeth at the banquet scene. And this is perhaps indicating that his soul can't rest until the chain of being is reinstated, almost like he's in kind of this limbo, this purgatorial kind of land, um, and but also to show how unjust his murder is. And of course, it's still appealing to the idea of the supernatural again, isn't it? This idea of ghosts and witches and so on. So Fleance then, his child, and, and children are presented as vulnerable throughout, obviously, Macduff's children being murdered, and then you've got the vulnerable Fleance. And he's kind of uh, acts as a little bit of an enigma as well, doesn't he, really? Like, where does he go? Where's his mother? His father has been um, sort of murdered in front of him. Um, who's going to provide for him and, and look out for him next? Um, I guess it also provides the question of, well, how does it go from Malcolm being king to then Fleance one day being king? Now, I did come across some information that said the Scottish crown was um, not hereditary at this time and heirs were chosen um, not only necessarily from being the firstborn child, that wasn't necessarily recognised. So for Duncan to make uh, Malcolm the Prince of Cumberland is significant within his actions at the start there in Act 1. Um, however, this could perhaps explain why... Um, Fleance could be elected as king at a, a later date because, you know, law didn't necessarily say it had to be the ne the child as the next in line. Um, he represents, I guess, revenge and that goodwill out. 
and that idea of fate, which is touched upon by the witches, and promise and hope for a younger generation, which is um, a theme we also looked at, isn't it, within an inspector calls. Okay, then. Um, let's look at Malcolm next. So Malcolm is needed to reinstate order, um, according to divine right. He's the rightful heir to the throne because he's the Prince of Cumberland. Um, he speaks the final words in the play because he's the most powerful and to sort of end on a, on a good note, you could argue. He runs away from danger. So at first we could almost argue he's a bit of a coward um, or maybe quite wise because he kind of seeks danger and goes away to come back more powerful with the help of England. He separates from his brother, doesn't show his grief on stage, so he perhaps comes across almost quite cold at first. Um, he tests Macduff's loyalty, which suggests he is more clever than he first lets on. Um, he creates a kind of story about being lustful and greedy and really breaks Macduff down and, and just tests that it's not, you know, he's playing a bit of a game with him. But at times he can present as a little bit weak, I think, and a little bit immature or inexperienced. So the audience at first could have um, sort of quite mixed um, reactions about this character. But, you know, all hopes put into him at the end because he needs to overthrow um, Macbeth. And unlike his father, he's, he's on the battlefield, isn't he? He's prepared to fight for his country. Um, the witches then, they speak in rhyming couplets. They're there to entertain. They're there to provide contrast and entertainment. Um, the spell making, the imagery created there, the dancing, the chanting. Um, it's arguably a little bit more fun to break up the the kind of gloom and doom of Macbeth and all the blood killing, the bloodshed, sorry. Um, they're very much linked to disorder and corruption with weather, nature, um, they're very ugly in appearance. They're, they're objectified by men for their looks. They're described to have beards. Now, this could have been quite amusing because only men were actors, so men playing these these witches. They're described to have skinny lips, choppy fingers. You know, we've, we've very much made aware of their appearance so that the audience at the time are repulsed by them. We're distant from them. We don't warm to them. They're there to scare. And Macbeth, Within the language he uses, the words fair and foul is linked to the witches as a result because, of course, they use those words as well, don't they? So in terms of um, thinking about how your marks are distributed in this exam, we're thinking about 45% of your answer again is kind of on language and structure and writers' messages and things. And part of that can be your effect as, as an audience. So you can comment on you as an audience or an audience at the time and why this is maybe still significant or relevant today, why people still go to watch Macbeth and how you can relate to it. Make sure that you quote heavily from the extract, but if you can quote from elsewhere in the play, that's fantastic. But remember to put those quotations in to allow you to um, analyse language okay, and methods. It's really important that you do that. So another thing I wanted to do then was I recently purchased a book and I've highlighted a couple of things in it which um, I wanted to share with you. So this might be a little bit slow, so bear with me, okay? Um, so the first thing then that I highlighted was um, this idea that at the time that this was written, like I said, it was devoutly Protestant and we could see then that Shakespeare is potentially having a little bit of a dig at Catholics, um, probably to try and um, 
to stabilize his own position in society as well. Um, so one of the things I'd highlighted then said that um, Shakespeare's associations with um, the the plotters of the gunpowder plot lie with his father, John Shakespeare, whose religious stance had been something of fierce debate. Um, and so it states that John was perhaps a secret Catholic um, and this, therefore, he would have probably... Shakespeare would have feared for himself, his his family as a result of this. And he's used his position, perhaps, um, to, I guess, ridicule Catholics to some extent or to to, to spread Protestant um, values and beliefs within writing this play. Um, there is a real possibility that Shakespeare could have known the men responsible for the gunpowder plot and of course, anybody who was deemed to sympathise with Catholic notions was described as being kind of a menace that had to be dealt with. So that's something quite significant then, kind of Shakespeare's links to Catholicism, the Catholic Church through his family and, and how he's maybe written this um, as a bit of a defence mechanism um, with some of the choices he's made. And I'll let you look into that a little bit more yourself because there's, there's loads of different things he does to appeal to that, whether it be the names he's chosen or um, kind of the porter scene as well. Okay, next thing I'd highlighted then um, was where we'd kind of spoken about medieval women and how Lady Macbeth is seen as this controversial character. And again, looking at the Bible, um, I've highlighted in Timothy, we read, but I suffer not a woman to teach, nor to use authority over the man, but to be in silence. Um, it also says in Corinthians, let your, woman keep, let your women keep silence in the churches, for it is not permitted unto them to speak, but they are commanded to be under obedience. So we can see again the, the sort of religious teachings there that women should be seen and not heard, they should be silent. And so Lady Macbeth is seen as sinful and going against the church and the religion at the time. Um Next thing I wanted to share with you then is we have a lot of bird imagery, don't we, in the play? Um, one of the quotations, which a lot of you will remember then, is the raven himself is horse. Now, according to Swedish folklore, ravens represented the ghosts of murdered people. And in German stories, ravens represent lost and damned souls. Additionally, as a talking bird, ravens have come to symbolise prophecy and insight. So that's something obviously significant that you can be linking to genre and the key themes of the play. Um, next thing then that I had highlighted, which I thought was quite an interesting fact, was to commemorate the fact that the gunpowder plot was not successful, King James I had a coin created which showed a snake hiding amongst a patch of flowers. And this in itself was metaphorical, um, the snake representing those who were conspiring against him. So it's likely then that a more contemporary audience watching Macbeth, um, even just a year after the gunpowder plot, would have immediately recognised um, this, the weight of this illusion. Um, and, and I've already given the quote, haven't I, of look like the flower but be the serpent under it. So it could be that he is writing this again to um, appeal to King James and the coin he had made. Okay, next thing then that I'd highlighted, sorry that I'm jumping between things a little bit, it's in no particular order, I'm just kind of going as they, they come up in the book really. Um, we could talk about 
um, how um, this idea of um, numerical kind of language which is shared with us. So we've got kind of like three witches, three prophecies, uh, three apparitions and, and so on. But we've also got this idea of um, twice done and then done double. So I've highlighted this humility uh, takes the form of Lady Macbeth's assumed subservience. She places herself and Macbeth in an inferior position, which is almost um, obsequious and Ma Lady Macbeth um, denounces her efforts to accommodate Duncan, stating that even if they were twice double, they would still not match the prodigious honour he has brought to their home. So Lady Macbeth uses the word double, which is linked to and echoing the witches' words when they use double in the spells they cast. So there's a lot of language which the witches use that also Lady Macbeth and Macbeth use, and fair and foul was the other example of that that I'd given. So again, be trying to look for those little connections within the text to extend your answer, make it a little bit more ambitious. Okay, then. Next bit I've highlighted. Um, something that is quite interesting. So Lady Macbeth obviously strips herself of any maternal qualities. We know she doesn't have a child. We don't know if it's because she is unable to have children. Um, but one of the things that I'd looked at is this idea that when she talks about bashing the brains out of her child as it feeds, um, perhaps this is a reference to a child that she's previously had or she would kill her baby from a previous marriage if she's had one um, so that their own child could take the throne at her husband's request. So it could be that she's um, seeking children or that they're wanting children um, and she she's almost willing to... Um, to get rid of that child to make hers and Macbeth her newer husband's child more powerful. So that's like another little kind of conspiracy that um, people have kind of um, come up with as they've studied the text. Okay. Um, another thing which I quite liked was this idea that when Banquo and Fleance are walking at night time, which ends up being the blame of his death, you know, men shouldn't walk so late, um, his Fleance is described to be carrying a torch and this is, again, undoubtedly metaphorical. The witch's prophecies explored the idea that Banquo's son would be king. And so him carrying this symbol, um, this light, suggests he's carrying hope for the future. Of course, he's been dutiful as well to his father, doing as he's, as he's told. Um, and Banquo's described to be kind of carrying a weapon uh, instead. So I guess this is seen as kind of a, a moment of education between the two characters. Um Banquo's made himself a career out of being skilled with a sword and now he must pass this knowledge on to his son. So the idea, I guess, of Banquo being the best father he can be for as long as he's got. Okay, then. Um, another concept that I want you to think about is the idea of the dagger being metaphorical for Lady Macbeth, not just a hallucination with the blood on the dagger representing guilt, but the, the dagger itself is being like Lady Macbeth. Perhaps you could look at the um, inability to sleep as being unnatural. Um, I've highlighted the inability to sleep as unnatural, emphasising that what Macbeth is about to do is beyond the bounds of normality. 
So this idea of um, are you between kind of hallucination, dream, sleep, mental health and, and that kind of battle. So that's something else you can look at as well. Um, another thing that I highlighted, which I found quite interesting then, was that Macbeth compares himself to a wolf. Now, firstly, wolves are commonly presented as being loyal animals or pack animals. Um, however, this wolf is loyal to the spectre of death and symbolises Macbeth's betrayal of, of King Duncan and his allegiance to actions that will serve only Macbeth. Um, in this case, then, um, the wolf imagery here is perhaps more symbolic of destruction and death. And I've highlighted it straddles both Macbeth's previous actions in battle and those that are yet to come. Finally, wolves have come to symbolise those who have a need to trust their own instincts. And Macbeth is also referred to around this stage as being um, like this image of Tarquin, who was um, a rapist in literature and in, in Roman history. Um, so again, that that's perhaps showing kind of um, the fragility of, of the monarchy and, um, and and crime, isn't it, of course, um, to overthrow the monarchy and the establishment of the Roman Republic when, when it's written about. So perhaps you could do some sort of further research on Tarquin there. Okay, um, if you wanted to try and leak to sort of um, Oedipus theory and psychoanalysis like I sort of said that you could do with an inspector calls perhaps you could look at this within the imagery of um arguably scotland itself being regarded as a mother figure and how the men are loyal to scotland generally but arguably macbeth's kind of going against it i guess isn't he? he's not necessarily doing what's right for scotland and it could be like a, a subconscious um driven act there the dagger, therefore, becomes a, a kind of phallic object if, you, if you're going to go down that route. Um, and again, with Tarquin's ravishing strides, that kind of sexual desire could be linked to within Macbeth's soliloquy. Remember, a soliloquy is where a character speaks on stage to themselves to let the audience know their inner sort of thoughts and feelings and desires. <clears throat> so be trying to use some of these kind of words within your answer if you can. Okay, then, um, let me see what I've highlighted next. Um, okay, so the next thing I'd highlighted then was um, this idea of water being used to cleanse and baptism to sort of purge somebody of sin um, and the fact that they're washing their hands or you have this imagery of kind of turning the sea red rather than getting the blood off Macbeth's hands is quite significant, isn't it? Um, that's something else that you could look at as imagery which is linked to a sort of religion again there. And apparently in the trial of Jesus Christ eventually ordering his death of crucifixion you had Pilates standing in front of the crowd, baying for the death of, of Christ, washing his hands in a way of proclaiming that he would not be seen as part of what was being asked of him. And that's written in Matthew. So if you can link to any of these um, sort of religious influences, sections of the Bible, which have perhaps influenced the plot, that could be quite significant as well. Okay, um, final thing then that I'm going to look at for today, because I did want to keep this under an hour. Um, 
is the idea of Final thought, what shall I leave you with? Um, this idea of Macbeth wearing borrowed robes, clothes that, that don't fit him. Um, and so that, I guess, suggests that um, he's never going to be able to fulfil this role, is he? Um, as as king, borrowed robes of kind of the thin of cordoy. Needs to get used to wearing them as well. So lots to think about there today. Um, I hope that's been helpful for you. Um, don't get scared by the language barrier, and you know, as long as you argue your point um, and back it up with evidence, you can't really go wrong with it. Okay. So good luck for your mock exams.